0: From the Gospel of John, Jesus said to her, I am He. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Glad to see you all here this morning. Uh, As we settle in for the sermon, I'd like to kind of start us off with a soft pitch question. And here it is What does it mean to be known? What does it mean to be known? Many of you are on Facebook, is that, is that true? Or social media of some sort. And so, you know, we have, we have your names, right? We have your list of names. And so if I were to go through our uh, database and I was to look each of you up on Facebook, and I was gonna spend, you know, two, three, four hours on your uh, social media profile, and I looked at your hobbies and your interests, the photos that you took, you know, Thanksgiving that you had last year with your family, maybe your political views, uh, you know, whatever it is that I was able to discern in a few hours, would you say that by the end of that time, I really knew you? Would you feel like by the end of that time that I would have permission to speak anything that I thought into your life? And would you receive that opinion well, right? Would you invite me to do that? Would you, would you think that I fully knew who you were? Now, social media is probably a bad example, right? Because a lot of our social medias are curated, Right? They are, they are, you know, some kind of false persona that we craft, and a purposely false identity. So I'm going to try another example. Uh, most of you know that I have two sons, Gabe, who is three, and Asher, who is 18 months old. And they make guest appearances in most of my sermons for two reasons. One, we spend an inordinate amount of time together, and two, I don't have to ask their permission to tell stories yet. So I can say whatever I want to, and they won't object. Well, despite the, despite the amount of time that we spend together, despite that they're my own children, they still baffle me. A couple weeks ago, we were at McKee Botanical Gardens, and I'm walking along the path with, with Asher, and we're admiring everything, and he takes an abrupt left turn and beelines it for the pond. Sorry, honey. Uh, my wife's sitting back there. And he beelines it for the pond, and he, and he just jumps right in. Now, praise the Lord, it's like, you know, it, it is barely up to his waist, but, but, you know, there you go. I don't think either he or I knew that was coming. Or think about my son Gabe. You know, in the course of the same meal, he can have his favorite dish and his absolute least favorite dish, and the dish hasn't changed, right? He loves it, and then he rejects it, and then it's his favorite again. You know, they, they still baffle me, and I, and I imagine that they don't have any idea what they're doing, that they still don't know themselves. And if you've ever done anything that you thought was completely out of character for you, that's just proof that we don't even know ourselves that well. So what does it mean to actually be known? What does it mean to be fully known? And if somebody were to fully know us, how much power would that give them, and what would they do with it? And that brings us to our passage in John chapter 4. And so I'd like us to go through this together. If you couldn't tell, this is a hefty text and I even cut a portion of it out. So it's a, it's a hefty text. So if you want to pull that out in front of you to follow along, you're welcome to do so, but I'm going to take us through this passage together. We see at the beginning that Jesus is, being, is tired from his journey, and he goes to a well to rest. And as he's at a well, he encounters a Samaritan woman. Now, if you know your movie terminology, this is not a meet-cute. You all familiar with what that is, right? the beginning of every romantic comedy, you have this accidental, awkward occurrence where, uh, you know, a man and a woman meet and maybe he like knocks the flowers out of her hand or her groceries down or something and then it kind of establishes this long-term relationship. You all know what I'm talking about there? This isn't an accidental meet-cute. In fact, this is an incredibly intentional meeting. This is a purposeful meeting. It has been planned by the foreknowledge of God and we know this because of a subtle thing that John does in verse 4. That's why we started with verse 4 in our gospel reading today. John says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Well, if you know your history, Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria. Most people didn't pass through Samaria. If you were a Jew and you were leaving Jerusalem or Judea to head up to Galilee… Samaria was the region right in between, right? Galilee would be north and Jerusalem is south, and Samaria was the region right in between. And you know the story of the Good Samaritan, that the Jews and Samaritans have a good relationship. They enjoy being around each other. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so what Jews would do is they would head east and they would go around Samaria to enter into uh, the northern region in that manner, right? They would rather spend time with Gentiles than to spend time with Samaritans, That was the common route. He'd go east, and then he would come back to get into the northern region. And so Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria, and and most Jews wouldn't have. So when John is saying that he had to pass through Samaria, what he is hinting to you and to I is that Jesus had an appointment with this woman, a divine appointment to go to this well. And what's incredible about this, if we think about God's plan and the fact that all of these things work together in His hands, I think it speaks a lot to what we are facing right now, which we'll speak more about at the announcements. So Jesus is going full on to this well with the divine appointment of God, and He encounters a Samaritan woman. Now, you'll notice that the text says the sixth hour, right? The Jews started counting counting up from 6 a.m., so this was noon. Now, if you've ever been out in Florida out of your vehicle for an extended period of time at noon, you would know that it is hot, right? Summer's coming. It already feels like it's here, doesn't it? It is hot. Now, imagine that you are in the Middle East, and it is an arid and dry and desert climate. Is that a good time to do your chores? Is that a good time to walk outside however far you had to go to get to the well? No, of course not. What this is telling us is that this woman was going in order to avoid people. Because, you know, back in that culture, in fact, even today in cultures where you still have to travel to wells to get water, it was a communal event. You would get, All of the women of the village would gather together. They would spend time with their friends, right? This would be kind of like the equivalent today of um, uh, moms calling each other up to make a Target run together so they can grab their Starbucks and get their shopping done in community, right? That's kind of what going to the well was. And so you would go with your friends and you would gather and go to the well either at dawn or at dusk to avoid the heat and to spend time together. But she is choosing to go at noon. She's going in the heat of the day and we soon find out why, right? If you look at your text, she is approaching the well and Jesus asks her for water and she is shocked. She cannot believe it. There there is nothing in their culture that would, that would make it okay for them to communicate with each other. Back in that culture, men didn't even talk to their wives in public. Back in that culture, uh, Jews did not talk to Samaritans. And in that culture, the same as today, if you were a social outcast, if you were a social pariah, somebody who was, an, was an important as a rabbi, as a teacher, would, wouldn't even dream of speaking to you. So there's three strikes against this interaction, and so she's baffled by this. And so she she asks him, right, if you look in your text, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And what she's saying, to put it in modern parlance, is uh, uh, not to be rude, but I'm not sure you understand the basic social conventions of what we're supposed to be doing here, right? She's like, "I, I don't want to be rude about this, but like, let me just try to put you off. And this is the first of the walls that she tries to kind of build up between her and Jesus, Right? You know those kind of polite ways of trying to extricate yourself or to prevent a conversation from happening? That's what she's doing. But Jesus isn't put off, is he? He decides to engage her further. And this might be the most profound line in the text. He says, if you knew the gift of God, right? He says, if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked me for living water. And she's confused. She has no idea what he's talking about yet right? I mean, living water, that's not a term that you and I regularly use, but back in that day, living water just meant a stream or a river or an ocean or a spring, any water that was moving. That's what living water was. And so he says, you would ask me for access to fresh water. And she's completely confused by this, and so she looks around and she must be wondering, what are you talking about, living water? Where are you going to draw this? Do you have a spring in your back pocket? What What are you saying here to me? She's confused, but you know Jesus being the master of double entendre, he has something else in mind, doesn't he? You and I as Christians know exactly where he's going with this. He says, you would have asked me for living water. Do you know the difference between a well and a spring? A well can dry up. A well can be filled in by your enemies so that it doesn't produce water. A well can fall apart due to neglect. A well can be intentionally covered over and built upon. But springs, living water, that's not so easily stopped. Neglect doesn't stop living water. Enemies assaulting you and intentionally trying to cover it over doesn't stop living water. And what Jesus is offering her as he offers you and I is a chance to quench our thirst with a source that does not run dry. One of the drawbacks of being on social media, and there are many, would you all agree? Uh, one of the drawbacks of being on social media is that, like it or not, I am always caught up on the latest slang. And, and, I, and I can't help it, and you probably can't either, and, and one of the current slang insults is to call someone thirsty. Now, ironically for our text today, to be thirsty... And by the way, if you know where I'm going with this, if you know what this term means, you're, cl- you're either cringing or blushing right now, because it's an awkward thing to talk about. But to be thirsty on social media is to crave attention by either posting a ton of pictures of yourself to get recognition, to get love, to try to get something. For- yeah, I know, all the young ones in here are just like, please don't go here, please don't go here, I'm going here. Um, to be thirsty is to crave attention so much that you're trying to post a lot of things to draw attention to yourself, or... That you're trying to uh, engage in a romantic encounter, and so you go on somebody else's profile or whatever, their pictures, and you start liking them or making comments about how good they look. That's being being thirsty. Y'all follow me on that? What's incredible about this is 2,000 years later, being thirsty means the exact same thing. Because this woman is thirsty, isn't she? We find that out next in the text because she asked Jesus for this living water. And what Jesus says is, sure, let's go get baptized and, you know, you can follow me and we'll move on and you'll experience eternal life and, you know, everything will be good, right? That's what Jesus says in the text, right? Amen. No, that's not what he does. You would think that's what he would do, right? An altar call, come up to the front, let's go ahead and sprinkle you and move on. No, that's not what he does. And and was perhaps one of the most rude, seemingly rude interjections in a conversation when she asks for this living water what does Jesus say he says Go get your husband And 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 you know you can imagine she's just completely put off by this right she she knows her situation I and so, and so she does this thing again she tries to put up another wall right you'll notice this trend with her she's putting up walls I have no husband By the way in the Greek that's in a very abrupt way to speak that's like we're done talking now I have no husband And so what does Jesus do? Why is He taking this abrupt and awkward turn? Why is He dredging up the source of her shame and her humiliation? Why is He pointing out the bright red scarlet letter that is on her chest and drawing attention to it? Why would He point out the greatest burden that she is carrying? Why would He do that? Well, how else does one know that they're forgiven? How else does one know that they are accepted and loved? How else would you possibly experience grace? How would, you, how would you know that someone has forgiven you unless they have seen the darkest recesses of your soul, the greatest hurt and sins and humiliation that you have caused them, and they know it fully, and then they look at you and they say you are forgiven of your sins? You see, Something as powerful as forgiveness and grace or acceptance and love do not touch the core of who we are unless that core is exposed, right? Um, You don't receive compliments well from people who don't fully know you, do you? Unless you're incredibly vain, you might think, I'm glad that the part of me that you know, you know, I'm thankful and receptive that the part of me that you know is something that you appreciate, right? Right? But if you have any self-awareness at all, there's always that part of you that is unknown. And especially if you spent much time in that part of you that's unknown, you might think, yeah, but you you don't know this, right? You don't know the argument that I had yesterday. You don't know how I lost my cool, or you don't know what I've said about you, or, you know, whatever it is, like, you don't know the full story. And so we're not always great at accepting forgiveness and love or even accolades because of that part of us. So why would, why would Jesus fully expose this part of her? Because you know that this sin is so defining for her that she, she is a complete social outcast, right? This is the defining sin of her life. And I want you to consider what it must feel like for this woman at this moment to have that sin or those sins that you have carried for so long be exposed to the light. And I want you to think about what that is. It's not going to take you long. You know what it is the thing that if you were to stand up and publicly proclaim would be putting you in a great position of vulnerability. And so this woman whose sin is uncovered, she is, you can imagine the point that she's in, right? You ever been in a moment where you have been caught in a sin or your sin's been exposed and you're in front of somebody and it's that, that short moment before you know what they're going to do with it? You remember how, you know, Caesar would do this, right, like in the games, and you don't, somebody's, somebody's thumb is out sideways, and you don't know whether or not they're going to give you mercy or condemnation. You ever been exposed in that manner, anyone? We all have, and that's what she's facing. She doesn't know what Jesus is going to do with this sin. She doesn't know what Jesus is going to do with the fact that the, the depths of her brokenness are exposed, and she does what all of us would do in this situation, right? What do you do when you've put yourself out there and you catch yourself and you realize it? right? Let's change the conversation as quickly as we possibly That was a car, by the way. Let's change the conversation as quickly as we possibly can. And so she does this, right? If you look at her text, she tries to change the subject. Oh, so you're a prophet. You're like, let's not, let's not get into this thing. Let's just talk about the fact that you're a prophet. And then she tries to engage him in um, a hot-button political debate of the time, like where, where are you supposed to worship? You know, we say it's here, you say it's there. What do you think about that? She's really desperately putting up another wall, isn't she? And Jesus engages her in this anyway. He continues to relentlessly pursue her. He briefly engages her red herring. And then she is just, she's so done with this conversation because, again, she's dangling out there exposed and she doesn't know what to do with the fact that, her, that, that she's just completely vulnerable in this man's eyes. And so she, trying to end the conversation for like the third or fourth time, says, well, guess we'll only we know the end of this debate until the Messiah comes. Guess we won't know. Period. So, what does Jesus do with that? He still pursues her and he says, I am He. And that's when it clicks for her. Father Chris spoke last week about the process of being born again, about how when you experience new life, everything kind of comes together and it clicks you ever see those movies? Um, anybody here ever seen The Sting with uh, Paul Newman? Anybody ever here ever seen the Oceans movies, like uh, Oceans 11 or, or any of those movies? You know how, like, there's all these plots that are kind of going on in the movie, but by the end of the movie, somebody realizes something, and all of a sudden, everything comes crashing down on that person, and they look back through everything that had been happening, and a story is presented, and everything is known and open. Y'all know exactly that moment I'm talking about at the end of the movie where everything comes together? That's what this woman is experiencing. It clicks for her. The person who sought her out, who continued to engage her in conversation in a polite and respectful manner, who loved her enough to continue pursuing her, that is the person who exposed her sin and yet continued to sit with her anyway the Messiah. He is the one who offered her the fullness of forgiveness. You know, in the awkwardness of that moment, Jesus did not choose condemnation. He chose to expose the sin so that she could experience the fullness of forgiveness. You know, C.S. Lewis puts this idea, and it's so radical because this is the moment that if you have experienced the gospel and you know who Jesus Christ is to you and, he, and you know that he knows your sin and the forgiveness that he given, there's, there's a profound, uh, it's an incredibly profound moment. And, and C.S. Lewis puts it this way. I think that it's a baffling moment for most of us. And the way he puts it in Weight of Glory is he says this. He says, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work, or a father, a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. You can imagine that when everything clicks and and she's experiencing this renewal of life, she probably doesn't have very dry eyes, does she? She's lost it at this point. And you can tell it's an awkward moment, right? Because just then, Jesus' disciples show up. And have you ever rolled up on a conversation that's incredibly deep and it's just kind of an awkward moment for everybody involved? This moment is so awkward for them that they don't say a word, do they? Right? Jesus is having this profound meeting with this woman, and her life has, has been completely changed, and they don't say a word. They don't know what to do with it. And so the woman, she, she, she leaves her water jar, and she goes back into town, and here's how we know she has been transformed. Right? Last week, we knew with Nicodemus that he was transformed because he kept showing up again in the gospel, He kept showing up again. Well, we know that this woman is transformed because this social outcast who has spent her entire life avoiding everyone goes into town, seeks people out with a courageousness and a boldness that she didn't carry when she had all of the weight of her sin. She seeks people out and points them to the one who removed that from her, doesn't she? The weight of her shame, her social isolation, all of it is forgiveness, forget, forgotten in the grace she received from her encounter with Jesus Christ. And her demeanor must have entirely changed because the town people actually listened to her. There's one last thing that I'd like to mention before we close our sermon, and it's the significance of this well. We talk about how God doesn't do anything by accident, right? There's no coincidence, as father Chris mentions. Everything is foreordained by God. Well, the significance of the well in Scripture is incredibly profound. I said earlier that this wasn't a meet-cute, right? And what I meant by that is this is not an accidental encounter, but there is very much a deep romantic aspect to, their, uh, to this occurrence, and I don't mean in a physical way. You know, where did Moses meet his wife Zipporah? At a well, where was Isaac's wife met? At a well. Where did Jacob meet his wife? At a well. A well in Scripture is significant because this is the place of meeting to engage in a profound relationship. You know, it's no accident that we as the church are called the bride of Christ. This is the manner that God wishes to pursue each and every single one of us. And so I would encourage you in closing this Lent, if you have been doing a deep dive into the state of your relationship with God or the state of your character flaws or your sins, if you've been using this as a moment, as a time of introspection and self-reflection, I would encourage you this week to bring that openly before the Lord. You know, one of the great practices of our tradition that we don't take much advantage of is uh, private confession. And I have to tell you, there's something really profound about laying your sins out there and experiencing the grace and forgiveness of God through a priest and knowing that you're forgiven by him. You know, what is not revealed to the light, what is not exposed, is hard to heal, isn't it? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you pursue us relentlessly, that even as we try to put up our own walls, or we try to um, avoid you in our sin, or we are embarrassed or ashamed of the things that we have done, that you still come after us. I thank you that as we have encountered you, you place in our hearts a spring of living water, that no matter how much we try to cover it up or leave it to neglect, God, you are still there, and you still seek us out. So God, I pray that we would come before you this week knowing your forgiveness, knowing that you are the one who is relentlessly after us, that we would reveal ourselves and our hearts to you once again because, God, you already know, and that we would accept your grace and mercy. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.